0: Good morning. Good morning, if you would please take out your copy of the scriptures, turn to Luke chapter 10. Those of you who've been here for a while, you'll remember that once upon a time, long, long ago, we started a sermon series in the gospel of Luke. Uh, we started with chapter 1, verse 1, and we stopped at the end of chapter 9 to take a, a brief pause, a break, to do the book of 2 Samuel. Well, now with 2 Samuel complete, I'm now come back to our study of Luke, and we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 10. Now, I'm not going to have the time this morning to give you a detailed synopsis of everything that's happened in the first nine chapters of this gospel, but just to kind of give you a very broad overview. In the early chapters, we're told about the birth of John the Baptist as the forerunner to Jesus, uh, Jesus' miraculous birth, and John's ministry as the one who would point people to Christ, Jesus' baptism by John, and uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And all that kind of sets up for us uh, chapters 4 through 9, which Chronicle the Galilean ministry, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That includes his teaching, most notably the Sermon on the Plain from chapter 6. No one ever spoke like this man. It includes his miracles, right? Lots and lots of miracles, uh, casting out demons, healing the sick, feeding the multitudes, even raising the dead. Now you add to that the Transfiguration where Jesus took Peter, James, and John on top of a mountain and revealed to them some of his unveiled glory. And it is abundantly clear to us by this point in the gospel that Jesus is, just like Peter confessed in chapter 9, the Christ of God. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He is very God of very God, God incarnate in human flesh, uh, he is the one who has come to seek and save the lost. And in accordance with that mission, uh, to save sinners like us, uh, there's a very important transition that takes place at the end of chapter 9. So look at Luke nine fifty-one. Uh, this is like the turning point in the gospel. And so if you have your own Bible in front of you and you like to write in your Bible, this might be a verse that you would underline or highlight because it is centrally important when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing that that is where he is going to go to the cross and give his life as a ransom for many. He's a man on a mission. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus, along with the disciples that remain with him, they begin to make their way down south from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so that's where we pick it up this morning as we jump into Luke chapter 10. Our goal this morning is going to be to cover the first 16 verses. And so uh, let me just read those verses. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, After this, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for for the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So point number one, the recruiting of the messengers. Point number two, the receiving of the messengers. And point number three, the rejecting of the messengers. So let's start with point number one the recruiting of the messengers. Jesus recruits messengers in verses 1 through 4. You look at verse 1, after this. And so after Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, after he and his disciples begin making their way down south from Galilee, after the story at the end of chapter 9, in which Jesus explains the cost of following him to potential disciples, after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. 72 others, meaning that this is a group other than, separate from the 12 disciples, the apostles. You may remember that the 12, they were appointed all the way back in chapter 6. And that the twelve, they've been sent out on a very similar short-term mission trip at the beginning of chapter 9. Remember chapter 9, verse 2? He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Well, that's basically what these others are being sent out to do here as well. But how many others are there? Well, there's some debate as to whether that number should be 72 or if you look at your footnote there in the ESV, 70 uh, manuscripts that we have. Remember that uh, we don't have the original manuscript of the Gospel of Luke. We only have copies of copies by scribes. Uh, The manuscripts are divided among the two numbers. 70 tells a nicer story because 70 elders of Israel go up to Mount Sinai and God tells Moses to appoint 70 elders when the burden gets too heavy for him alone. But maybe the neatness of 70 makes us lean towards 72, because you can see why a later scribe making a copy of a manuscript might change 72 to 70, but it's harder to explain why 70 would be changed to 72. But either way, the ESV has 72, and so we'll just go with that. Just wanted you to be aware of the textual variant in the text. Uh, That should not shake your confidence at all in our English Bibles uh, because for 99% of Luke's gospel and 99% of the Bible, uh, we can be confident that we know exactly what the original manuscript says and most of the significant variants that we do have are for minor issues like this. And so now, in addition to the 12, we've got 72, let's say, others who are going to go out and do the work of proclaiming The kingdom of God. Now, would they potentially cover more ground if they went one by one? Probably, but Jesus specifically sends them out in pairs. Not only for companionship, not only for safety, not only because there's just economies of scale, those are all excellent practical reasons to buddy up, but also because of the biblical principle of multiple witnesses. Right, that every truth ought to be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And you got one guy testifying about Jesus. Okay. But not two guys. Now they're both testifying about Jesus, his signs, his teachings, his miracles. Okay, now we gotta listen. And so Jesus sends out the 72 others, a two by two. And the three important things I want you to notice about the 72. Number one. 72 is more than 12. I was once a math major in college, and so (laughs) 72 is more than 12. Uh, That is mathematically obvious. But it's important for us to realize that the work of gospel ministry was not restricted just to the 12. Sure, the 12, the 12 apostles, they have a, a unique and unparalleled role in the early church like they are the foundation of the church and so they're, they're set apart in a special way but look at how Luke goes out of his way here intentionally putting these detailed instructions for the 72 just one chapter after the very similar instructions that were given to the 12 like he is intentionally being repetitive and redundant to point out that their missions are much more similar than not I'll leave it to you to go back sometime this week and compare the two sets of instructions, right? From the beginning of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 9, the instructions about packing light, about remaining in the same house, about shaking the dust off your feet if they reject you. Like these instructions are very, very similar. And I think Luke is being intentionally repetitive to make the point that the work of gospel ministry is not just restricted to a small group of elites. And you're going to want to hold that thought for another 15 chapters because that idea is going to become even more prominent after Jesus resurrects and he gives the great commission to every believer, even all the way down to us. So first, I want you to notice that 72 is more than 12. The second, I want you to notice that the 72 are faithful disciples. One thing that's interesting about the 72 is that we don't know who they are. Luke gives us the name of each one of the 12, but none of the names of the 72. But, and this is my point, even in their anonymity, like we have no idea who they are, we do know this. These guys were highly committed, all-in followers for Jesus. How do we know that? Well, think about what comes right before this. Luke chapter 9. Jesus goes into detail about what it means to follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then at the very end of the chapter, he challenges three potential disciples who seemingly had other priorities going on that such half-hearted commitment makes them unfit for the kingdom of God. Now, given that our passage directly follows that one, after this, I think it's safe to assume that these 72, that they knew that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They left the dead to bury their own dead. They put their hands to the plow and they never looked back. These guys were committed, faithful disciples. They'd left everything behind to do this work. Work. Look at how Jesus even warns them before they go. Verse three: Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You say, "Hmm." Like, not exactly seeker sensitive, there, Jesus. Like, if you really want to motivate these people to do this work, if you really want to win friends and influence people, like, you ought to be telling them that they're going to be like wolves among sheep, not vice versa. But Jesus tells them the truth. You're going to see opposition. There's going to be hostility. There's going to be, and we're going to get to this later, rejection. But here's where I'm going with this. The 72, they hear this potentially discouraging and harrowing warning. And they're completely unshaken. All 72 of them go. And we know that all 72 of them go because later we're told that all 72 of them come back. And not a single one of them hears that warning and decides, you know what? That is too heavy a cross to bear. Let's tie it back to last week's sermon. They knew that they were helpless sheep. They knew that there were wolves out there, but they trusted the good shepherd. They trusted the chief shepherd of the flock. And so they're undeterred on their mission. So first... 72 is more than 12. And second, the 72 are faithful disciples. But third, I want you to see that even 72 is not enough. 72 is a pretty big number. But lest you think that 72 disciples is now enough to do the work, or maybe 72 plus 12 is 84, uh, that's still not enough because look at verse 2. The harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. The picture there is of this great harvest. Uh, the, the grain fields are, are ripe and and they're ready. The, the fields are white for harvest. Referring to the souls of sinners. Otherwise headed for judgment, apart from hearing the good news of the kingdom of God, like the harvest is plentiful. Uh, God's elect are everywhere. But how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so look at what Jesus tells the 72. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Like even as you guys go, even as you, the 72, go as laborers into the harvest, even as you are part of the answer to that prayer request yourselves, you need to pray. And not just pray, but pray earnestly. Pray earnestly that there will be more laborers who are going to be sent out. That's a prayer request that begins to find its fulfillment, at least in part, In the book of Acts, when the Lord of the harvest sends out laborers all over the known world, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's a prayer request that continues to find its fulfillment even today. As faithful churches minister in places where the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. As churches send out missionaries to places where the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. A Point number one, the recruiting of the messengers. Brothers and sisters, as we think about this point in the context of our church, well, isn't it true for us, just as it was for the 72, that the harvest is plentiful? there are some eight and a half million souls in this city that are going to spend eternity somewhere. And many of them have never really heard the gospel. And even of those who have heard the gospel and would even profess the name of Christ, like many are in dire need of discipleship and teaching in a healthy church. And there's a great need for more healthy churches throughout the city, whether that be revitalizations or church plants. And add to that the kingdom work that needs to be done overseas. Billions of people all over the world who've never even heard the name of Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. And is it not true that the limiting factor, like the binding constraint, if you will, is often a lack of people to do the work? Whether it's in our church or in our city or with overseas missions. But see, this is where we as a church need to be thinking biblically. Because in our flesh, we're quick to come up with this training program or that recruitment strategy or or this planning or that vision or, oh, have we... Consider that initiative. There's nothing wrong with programs and strategies and vision and planning and initiatives. But, uh, well, do not even Gentiles do the same? Like any organization, the Girl Scouts and your management team at work and your co-op board and the Jehovah's Witnesses, like any organization can do those things. What sets us apart as God's people is our ability to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And so yes, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Like there are great needs even in our context. But have we first and foremost prayed to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest? Asking God to raise up his church to do the work of the ministry. Asking God to work in his people this unquenchable passion to evangelize and disciple and pour themselves into people. Asking God to stir up the desire in the hearts of his people to even give their lives and go overseas to do missions work. Asking God to give us hearts that like, really reflect what we sang this morning. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy churches full. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent And how are they to be sent unless we're praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send them? Point number one the recruiting of the messengers. Point number two the receiving of the messengers. We're now in verses five through nine. Because as important as the recruiting and the sending of these messengers is, equally important is how they are received the response of those to whom they're sent. And so Jesus tells the 72, look at verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Now, peace be to you, that would have been a a common greeting back then. But here, peace be to this house, uh, it's more than just a common greeting. It's a way of describing the message of peace. The message about the Prince of Peace. The gospel of peace. Like the angel said on the day that Jesus was born, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or as Paul would later write in Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Or like Jesus himself would say to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. You see, the Bible teaches that natural man, because of his sin against God, is an enemy of God. He's at war with God. That you, because of the ways in which you have broken God's law, broken God's commandments, left to yourself, You are an enemy of God. And the Bible says that there is no peace for the wicked. Only the certainty of judgment. Ultimately culminating in an eternity in hell. Where sinners are punished forever for the sins that they have committed against the holy God. But the message of the gospel, right? The message of peace is that Jesus came to bring us peace with God. Now, we, looking back on the cross, right, we understand that that message of peace, we understand that message in its full form, that this Jesus that we've been talking about, he would take upon himself the sins of those who would believe in him and suffer the wrath of God in their place, so that all who trust in him might be forgiven. And then he would rise again, showing that all who trust in him do indeed have peace with God The 72, they may not have understood the gospel as fully as we do now, but they did know that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so it's an offer of that message of peace that these disciples are bringing. And if that message of peace is received, like if a son of peace is there, Jesus says remain there, minister there, receive hospitality there, eating and drinking what they provide. And on one hand, you don't have to feel guilty about that, like you're being some kind of burden to them because the laborer deserves his wages. But on the other hand, make sure you're not taking advantage of that, just going from house to house, always looking for better accommodations and better food and better hosts, because that's the kind of stuff that false teachers were known for. But while you're there, among those who have received you, among those sons of peace, well, verse 9, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you because the king of that kingdom, the one who brings us peace with God, well, he's now here, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Look to him. Trust in him. And then to authenticate that message, remember the purpose of miracles was always to authenticate the message. And so here to authenticate the message that the kingdom of God is here, Jesus gives them the power to heal the sick and cast out demons. Point number two, the receiving of the messengers. Well, that brings us now to Point number three, the rejecting of the messengers. We're in verses 10 through 16. Because here's the thing. Not everybody is going to receive you. And not everybody is going to be a son of peace. Remember Jesus said earlier, I'm sending you into the midst of wolves. And so the 72 shouldn't be surprised in the least bit when they are rejected. After all, their Lord was despised and rejected by men. And so why would they expect any different? And so when, not if, but when you're rejected by a town. Like when they don't receive you. Well, Jesus gives them very clear instructions. That they were to move on. No need to keep... Casting pearls before swine. Move on because there is more work to be done elsewhere. But before you move on, you need to go to the streets of the town, like to a a prominent place where everybody can see and hear, and you need to shake the dust off your feet as a sign of judgment against them. Because by rejecting the 72, they're not just rejecting the 72. If my daughter Abby goes to my son Asher and says, you need to go to bed, he'd probably find that to be kind of funny because that message carries no authority. But if she goes to Asher and says that I, his father, sent her to tell him that he needs to go to bed, well, now that's completely different. Because now she... As the messenger, that she carries the authority of the one sending her. And so for him to disobey her message, and you would never do that, uh, is now to disobey his father. That's the idea of what he's saying in verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And so by rejecting the 72, uh, these people are doing much more than just rejecting the 72. These people are rejecting God the Son and God the Father. And that carries some serious consequences. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Sodom. Like if any town is known for its wickedness, It's Sodom. Like long after its destruction in the book of Genesis, like throughout the Old Testament in Jewish culture, Sodom was like a byword for wickedness and judgment. And so everybody hearing this would have immediately understood that Sodom, the inhabitants of that city, oh, they're going to rightly be judged for their many sins. But on judgment day, these towns that are rejecting the 72 and thus rejecting Jesus, Jesus says that their judgment is going to be even more severe, less bearable than Sodom's. Because Sodom, we're told, rejected the message of righteous Lot. These towns... They're rejecting the message of the Lord Jesus himself. Can you imagine how that sounded in the ears of a first century Jew? That towns like Chorazin and Bethsaida, look at verses 13 and 14. Those are two towns in the region of Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry. The two places where Jesus performed many signs and many wonders. So for example, the feeding of the 5,000, were told, happened near Bethsaida. But in spite of all of that, they did not repent. They did not believe. They rejected Jesus. And so because of their blatant rejection of Jesus, like in spite of all of the clear evidence that they had, in spite of all of the teaching that they heard, like they heard sermons from the greatest preacher ever, in spite of all the miracles and signs that they saw, in spite of all of that, they rejected Jesus anyway. Like even with all that light, so judgment's going to go better for Tyre and Sidon. Like the epitome back then of like, rampant paganism. The two cities that were notorious for their godless wickedness. I could give you a whole bunch of Old Testament references to Tyre and Sidon, but really all you need to know about Sidon is that Jezebel was a princess of the Sidonians. Very wicked places. But Jesus says that if Tyre and Sidon had all the light that you had— Like, if they saw all that you saw, hypothetically speaking, even they would have repented. Oh, Corazon, Bethsaida, you saw so much. You heard so much, and yet you rejected Jesus. And so your judgment is going to be particularly unbearable. woe to you. And what about Capernaum? Well, Capernaum, we know from this gospel, was kind of like Jesus' base of operations when he was in Galilee. Like, that's where he lived, that's where he did most of his miracles, most of his teaching. They had more exposure to Jesus than anyone. But again, they too largely rejected Jesus. And how shall they escape if they neglect such a great salvation? And so they too will be appropriately judged. And point number three, the rejecting of the messengers. Well, friends, let me finish here by just giving us three important takeaways from this passage. And I want to think specifically about what this passage teaches us about rejecting Jesus. Takeaway number one, to not receive Jesus is to reject Jesus. To not receive Jesus is to reject Jesus. Like our passage makes it very clear. As these 72 go out, they're only going to run into two types of people. There's point number two, those who would receive the messengers And then there's point number three, those who would reject the messengers. And notice that there is not this like ambivalent, neutral, agnostic third group. Every single person is in one group or the other. They are clearly divided by the message of the kingdom. Look back at what the 72, what they are to say to the people who reject them. at the end of verse 11. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. You say, that sounds familiar. Well, it's because it is. It's the same message. Right? Look back to verse 9. It's the same message. The kingdom of God has come near to you. It's the same message that they gave in the towns that did receive them. And so you see, it's always the same message. The message is, the singular message that the kingdom of God and its king, King Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do, well, it's that one message that divides people into those who would receive it and those who would reject it. it reminds us of what Paul would later write in Second Corinthians. We are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. But to the other, a fragrance from life to life. The same message of the gospel of peace. The same message that the kingdom of God has come near. The same message of submitting to that king, King Jesus. To some, to those who would receive it, it's a fragrance of life and to others, to those who would reject it. It's a fragrance of death. All that to say, well, every single one of you has heard the gospel message this morning. You've heard that you are a sinner headed for judgment on eternity in hell. You've heard the gospel of peace. That Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us that we might be saved. You heard the message of the kingdom of God and its king that by trusting in him you can have salvation. And so you can either by the grace of God working in your heart and the Holy Spirit having made you alive you can receive that joyfully or And this is the only alternative you can reject it. Now, rejection might take on many different manifestations. It doesn't always look the same. Some people are going to say that's simply untrue. The gospel is simply untrue. Some are going to say that they love their sin too much to give it up. Some are just going to trust in their own good works to save them. Some are going to make excuses— Some are going to think that they're just going to go to Jesus later in life. Some are going to think that I don't need to pick a side. I can just remain neutral. But takeaway number one, to not receive Jesus is to reject Jesus. And so all of those are just different ways of expressing the same thing. Rejection of Jesus. Takeaway number one, to not receive Jesus is to reject Jesus. Which leads us to takeaway number two. That there are severe consequences to rejecting Jesus. To combine that thought with the previous takeaway. Like to not receive Jesus is a big deal. Because there are severe consequences to rejecting Jesus. Jesus. Suppose you had a choice between living in Capernaum in Jesus' day and living in Sodom in Lot's day. Like, where do you want to settle your family down and, I don't know, raise your children and all that? Well, I'm pretty sure, given what we know about these two towns, I'm pretty sure that everybody in this room would choose Capernaum. I'd imagine that most of the people there were nice Moral folks that you wouldn't mind having as your next door neighbor. Good schools and low crime and just a nice neighborhood. Certainly doesn't have the desire for, uh, the the reputation rather for ungodliness that, that a Sodom had. But do you see what Jesus is saying in our passage? Like what those people did in Capernaum? And blatantly rejecting, openly rejecting Jesus, that's counted as worse than what the people of Sodom did. But what the people of Sodom did, and not only in their homosexuality and perversion, but the Bible also talks about Sodom's inhospitality and their greed. Like all of that, outright rejecting the kingdom of God, like Capernaum did, that's even worse. Now, Jesus is not trying to excuse Sodom in any way or say that judgment's not going to be that bad for Sodom. No, judgment is going to be bad for the people of Sodom. He's simply pointing out the severity of the consequences of rejecting him. And it's a reminder to us that hell is going to be populated by a lot of nice people. A lot of good neighbors. A lot of religious folks. Not just the openly wicked pagans of a Tyre or a Sidon, but also the moral trying to do my best to keep the law upstanding citizens of a Chorazin or a Bethsaida. Those who have rejected Jesus. So the message of the gospel... The message of the gospel is both a message of great hope and a message of great warning. The great hope is that no matter how bad you are, like even if you've lived in Sodom or Tyre or Sidon or New York City, uh, even if you've committed the vilest of sins, sexual sin and paganism and murder and adultery, like you name it, the good news of the gospel is that if you receive Jesus, if your trust is in the gospel of peace, that he died for your sins and rose again, that you might be righteous, like even you can be saved. There is no sinner who has sinned so grievously that the grace of Jesus can't forgive them. But the great warning of the gospel is that no matter how good you are even if you are an upstanding citizen of Capernaum or Chorazin or Bethsaida or the Upper West Side like no matter how many blessings you've been privy to, no matter how much church you've had in your life no matter how much you know about Jesus if you reject Jesus if you reject his gospel message, his gospel messengers There is no forgiveness for you. There is only sureness of eternal condemnation. Takeaway number two, there are severe consequences to rejecting Jesus. Finally, takeaway number three, the more light you have, the more responsible you are for your rejection of Jesus. The more light you have, the more responsible you are for your rejection of Jesus. The Bible is clear on this, and our passage is especially clear on this. Like, all sinners will be held accountable for their sin, but those sinners who have sinned against light, abundant light, they will be held especially accountable for their rejection of Jesus. Like the reason that judgment is going to be so bad for Chorazin and for Bethsaida, well, it's because of the mighty works that they saw. Uh, those works are terrible testifying against them because they so clearly pointed to who Jesus is. There were works so amazing that the the wicked people of Tyre and Sidon, like if they had seen them, they would have been in sackcloth and ashes in repentance because they had that much light and that much knowledge and yet continue to reject Jesus. Well, that's why it's going to be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment. And the reason that judgment's going to be so bad for Capernaum, again, it's because they've rejected Jesus in spite of so much light. Like in their case, literally, the light of the world was living amongst them. Galilee of the nations, just like Isaiah said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. But, 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 so many of them rejected the light. They rejected the light because they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And for that, they're going to be held accountable. To whom much has been given, of him much will be required. But here's the thing. I'm not speaking to people from Chorazin. None of you are from Bethsaida. Nobody traces their origin to Capernaum. I'm speaking to you. And specifically, like right now, I'm speaking to those of you who are not saved. My friend, you have had so much light. Christian family, Christian friends, a gospel preaching local church. Some of you have heard sermon after sermon after sermon, week in and week out. For some of you, years on end. Like you know who Jesus is, you know what he's done for sinners like you, you know the gospel. For you, the terrifying truth is that one day you will be held accountable for all of that light, particularly for your repeated, persistent rejection of that light. But the hope of the gospel, my hope for you now, like even right now, is that light would finally, break through your hard heart. And that you would see, for the very first time, that you would see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The more light you have, the more responsible you are for your rejection of Jesus. But that same light can break through even the hardest of hearts. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a hard passage. Uh, not so much because we don't understand what it's saying, but because I think we do. Father, we pray for all in this room who do not know you, for that today indeed would be the day in which light would break through and that they would see the glory of Christ, see salvation in the gospel. Father, we pray that none of us would leave this room unchanged, but that indeed your word would do a powerful work in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.